So I want to step back for just a second. I know Danny did this as he introduced it, and Dave did it last week as we talked about the confession in general. But I kind of want to step back and think about why we're even talking about this. You know, Beth and I were talking yesterday. Why are we not just studying the word? Why are we studying a confession? And, you know, this confession is broken down into, I mean, we're going to be here. This is going to be a marathon. It's broken down into 32, I believe 32 it is, sections, 30 or 32, and we're going to go through each individual section a week. So we're going to be here a little while. I think the longest that we've had in a session has been 13 weeks, 12 or 13. So we're going to double the amount of time that we spend in a class on the confession. That's a lot to devote to something that's not necessarily just the Word of God. But it's important, and just to frame where we're going with it, we're breaking down each individual week important components that are building blocks on top of each other as we sort of dig through the entirety of this this document. And again, as we talked about in the class on the Word of God, this is not meant to supersede or uh, it has no greater authority than the Word of God. That is our final and ultimate authority in understanding everything about God and His relation to His people is the Word of God. That's the first basic tent we have to understand. But the Confession is a helpful document that was formulated by people far greater and far smarter, I should say far smarter than myself, to think about organizing in a body of documents everything that we want to talk about as far as God's attributes and the relation to his people and every aspect of thinking about justification, sanctification, adoption, and the way that God interacts with his people. And so last week we spent the entire time talking about the scriptures. And it was so foundational because the scriptures, if we don't agree on common tenets and precepts about the scriptures, then the rest of this entire class would be um, broken down because we have to agree that everything that we're talking about comes from the Word of God. And today we're talking about God and the Trinity. And we have to agree on God's attributes, and we have to agree upon the triune nature of God before we can talk about things like God's decree. And it's almost in a flowchart fashion. If you think I'm a very visual person, I was thinking about making something or drawing something, but just kind of imagining your mind, thinking about foundational building blocks. So we have the scriptures, we have God and the Trinity, we have God's decree, and then that filters down into everything else under that. Creation, divine providence, the fall of man, God's covenant, Christ the mediator, and then we go through all the ways that we interact with um, Christ in that, um, and God through free will, justification, adoption, etc. So we've got a tall marching order ahead of us to go through 32 chapters, but I think it's going to be really helpful as far as discerning certain theological items and ways that we can talk about certain theological principles like justification and adoption. We spent a lot of time, we had a 13 week class on sanctification. But this is a framework by which we view um, the scriptures and a framework by which we can helpful, it's helpful in collecting thoughts and uh, ideas and the entirety of uh, a doctrine written in a, in a single document. So that's kind of the purpose of the confession. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, please. So I was just thinking that document must be based on scripture. Absolutely, 100%. So really, it's just an expert explanation or expansion of that. Yeah. Okay. And ultimately, again, the doctrine that we <laughs> learn here has no greater authority than the Scripture. The Scripture is the authoritative document by which we draw everything, and we're basically organizing the Scripture into categories and right. into different chapters of thought. Okay. Um, you know, Robert Martin, and by the way, this is a, I think Dave showed this last week, for those of you that are interested, this is a um, very heady, it can be quite heady, but also really helpful breakdown of every single chapter of the 1689 London Baptist Confession. And it, you know, we're going to be in it for quite some time, and it has really helpful principles and just helps help me as I was preparing for this, thinking through each chapter in a very systematic, thoughtful way. But in this, 
Robert Martin speaks about four things on the on uh, specific uses of a good confession. Number one, it aids in the public affirmation and the defense of truth. So we talk about this in a public setting, in a classroom setting, or even from a pulpit. It aids in the affirmation of what we talk about from the scripture and in the defense of things that we consider to be true and right when it comes to our faith. It provides standards of church fellowship and discipline. I think that's important. It outlines concise standards by which to evaluate ministers of the word. I think this is an interesting principle or interesting thought because we have the scriptures, and if we all agree upon what's in this confession, it can be used as sort of a litmus test for what's being heard from the pulpit. Because if we all agree on the word and its authoritative body, or its authoritative nature, and we agree upon the way that we've organized it into this particular document, this confession, then therefore we can evaluate the ministers of the word to ensure that it's being consistent with what we are uh, know to be true. And then finally, it contributes to our sense of historical continuity. That's uh, you know us being a reformed confessional church. It provides some link to that historical continuity. I think that's an important aspect. Beth, I know you you, you uh, mentioned that you thought these were really important last night. I don't know if you want to say anything about why you think the that's so important when no, talking I about think, this. No, I think you summed it up. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think you did well. Yeah. So one of the, <laughs> if you think about it, as I was preparing, I, it really humbled me to think about God, his nature, his attributes, and the Trinity, because we have the next, you know, 40 minutes to go through these aspects, and it's really daunting because we're trying to grapple with things that are incomprehensible. And I think, first off, we have to say that, number one, we're human, and that we are incapable of comprehending an infinite being. Us as finite beings are incapable at baseline of discerning and knowing more than an infinite being. So I think that's the first thing that we have to say. There's many things that are going to end up in mystery and end up in, the, in a tense mystery that we have to learn to be comfortable with. It may not feel good to be comfortable with, but we have to learn to be comfortable with that mystery. I really like what Sam Waldron said in this book. He, you know, one of the most challenging aspects of today is that we're constantly grappling with infinite, the, the infinite, when discussing the doctrine of God. But I think it's important to know that the doctrine of God, above all, is a deep sense of our intellectual and spiritual insufficiency. As we study this chapter, our souls should humbly cry out again and again, as it says in 2 Corinthians 2.16, who is sufficient for these things? I think that's really important. That's kind of a baseline threat. You know, you think about when we talk about the doctrines of man, the doctrines of the church, even the doctrines of the word of God itself, we're dealing in some ways with things that are related directly to humanity. But when talking about God and the Trinity, we're dealing with the infinite. And it's virtually impossible for us to comprehend to a full degree the infinite. So that's by way of introduction to this, uh, this, this chapter. So it's split into three paragraphs. And it's really helpful to think through this as three paragraphs, and we'll break each one of them down. The first paragraph deals primarily with the attributes of God. We'll go through that. And I know in some, if you've taken systematic theological classes or you've even read systematic theologies, it breaks it down into the communicable and incommunicable attributes of God, those things that, that are... Um, that, that, you know, that in some ways um, can be translated um, to some of humanity, but this does not break it down into communicable and incommunicable. We just have a list of attributes. So that's something to think about. But paragraph one deals with the attributes of God. Paragraph two deals in ways with the relation of God to his creatures. And then paragraph three deals with the triune nature of God, or as I've adopted to saying now from reading this chapter, the triunity of God. And we'll get into why I think that's a really helpful way to think about it. So as we jump into this, if someone wants to read chapter one, and then we'll break it, or excuse me, uh, the paragraph one, not chapter one, paragraph one, I think I did the same thing, David. Read um, paragraph one, and then we'll break it down. We have any uh, brave volunteers. <laughs> the Lord our God is but 
one only living and true God, whose substance is and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immorality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will, for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and with all most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. Amen. Let's pray. That's it. <laughs> that was no, a mouthful. It is a mouthful. There's a lot contained in that first paragraph. And so we're going to break it down into eight sections. It's very helpful. Um, it's something I learned. If you look, there's eight semicolons, and each of those eight semicolons breaks it down into eight specific sections. And so we're going to go through each of those. But there is a tremendous amount of rich theology contained just in this first paragraph. And we could probably, if we really wanted to, spend the rest of class just on this first paragraph, because there's so much in here. But nonetheless, that's not what's before us. So the first section, first semicolon, the Lord our God is but one and only living, true God. So what does that kind of signify to you? Monotheistic. Monotheistic, okay, one God. It can be broken down into, I don't know if this works, we'll see how well it writes, singularity. So the first one relates to God's oneness or God's singularity. So the first the eight points in here is that we talk about God's singularity, the oneness of God. Someone has a Bible or wants to pull up 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6. This is one of the scriptural proof texts. And as you see, as we go throughout the entire 1689, every one of these are rich with biblical proof texts. I wish we had the time to read every single one of them to really be encouraged, but uh, I picked out some specific ones as we go through this lesson, to kind of highlight some of the important aspects of the confession. But this first one would be 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6. So someone wants to read that. Therefore, as to eating your food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real essence, existence, that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and, or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things, from, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all are all things, and through whom we exist. Thanks for that. So clearly, that's one of the biblical proof texts for this aspect of the confession that talks about singularity, that God is one and only one. And in some ways, the singularity or oneness of God is related to something we're going to get into a couple sentences later about the simplicity of God. And that may seem a bit odd to define God as simplistic, but we'll talk about what they're getting at from the confessional aspect. But um, uh, the, the, the theologian Herman Bobnick, uh, he notes that the oneness of God doesn't only consist in a unity of singularity, but also in a unity of simplicity. So it's pretty clear that... Um, we worship and serve a God that is only one living, one true God. And there's a couple really helpful practical applications of thinking about the singularity of God. So one is that God is to be worshipped only and that he's to be loved supremely. He deserves our full worship, our full attention, and he is you know, a jealous God in that sense. He is one and he is jealous for love of his people, of his creation. 
Importantly, when we talk about um, things later, about the simplicity of God, we, we break it down into the Trinity or the triunity nature of God, we have to understand that because God is one, that his oneness in this mystery of the Trinity cannot be compromised. Because there's been a lot of heresy in church history trying to define the Trinity, but it's important to know from baseline that God's oneness is not compromised even when talking about the triune nature of God, and we'll talk a little bit about that. I'm going to try not to get into a lot of heady theology. I want it to be encouraging and practical, but there's some things that we probably do need to talk about from a theological perspective to help break down why they put certain things in the confession. If you could just say in one paragraph what's the importance of knowing the triune nature of God as opposed to you know, I just don't get that whole discussion. That third paragraph deals all with it. So if you get me to the end of class, I've got one quote from a theologian that's going to help basically wrap everything up. Okay. So I will answer that question right near the end because no, Voss just literally, it's mic drop. Like that quote, you read it and you're like, okay. I mean, again, it's not the ultimate explanation because there's no way that we as humans can define the mystery of the Trinity, but it's been the most helpful thing that I have come across to help me put some perspective around the Trinity, the importance of it, and thinking about the relationship of God the Father to God the Son to God the Holy Spirit. So great question, Jeff, and we'll get there. Um, and finally, I think when thinking about the attributes listed here, because we've you know gone through invisible, um, uh, immor immorality, um, he hath immorality, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty. All these attributes that we talk about, they're not subdivided between the persons of the Trinity. Each attribute of God is in addition to the whole unified divine essence of, the of each of those persons. It must be affirmed of each of those persons. So it's not like one part has a couple of these attributes, the Son has a couple of them, and the Spirit has a couple of them. All three parts of the Trinity comprise all of these attributes of God. So this is kind of that baseline. We've got the singularity of God. That's the first point. The second. We have really any good markers in here. Okay. Number two whose substance is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection. So what does that tell you guys? I'll try that. That's better. Well, this is dealing with the aseity of God, and that's Latin, but whose substance is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, this is from himself. It's derived from the Latin ase, or ase, um, which means literally from himself. So this is um, God defining that he is from himself. So this is the city. So why is this important? Well, first off, we, de we declare in this confession and through the scriptures and we'll, we've got a couple texts here. If somebody wants to pull up Isaiah 48, 12, that's where we're going to go for this. But God is self-existent, and he exists, and he exhibits in himself absolute independence. But we have to be careful to say that God isn't self-caused, because strictly speaking, he doesn't have any cause at all. He just exists. He is, and he exists, but he's not caused by anything. And as Sam Waldron puts it in here, he simply is in splendor and glory from all eternity. He is. So Exodus 3.14, this is probably most of all, you know this off the, the, you know, the top of your heads, but he, you know, they're talking about the name Yahweh, I am who I am. God clearly says there, I just am who I am. We see a little bit about the unchanging nature of God, the consistency of God, and it's related in part to his immutability. Immutability meaning that he has no ability to change or he doesn't change. And so... Therefore, if he can't change, if he has no reason to change, then he must not be brought into existence by another. So God is self-existing from himself. So Isaiah 48, 12, if someone wants to read that, because I think that highlights a really important uh, scriptural proof text. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. 
Yeah, I'm the first, I'm the last. Clear through there. There's other, there's other proof text um, throughout there, but clearly it says in like in Jeremiah, uh, that's another one, um, that, that God uh, is of himself. So what are the important things? Like, why is it important to say God is from himself? That he is self-existent, that he's absolutely independent of us. Why is that important? Why do we care? Yeah. He doesn't need us. We need him completely. We are completely dependent upon God. He has no need for us, nothing from us. Um, he has, we need absolutely everything from him. And furthermore, it leads us to think that, that everything that God provides us is sufficient for what we do or for what we need. So we must never doubt the resources that God gives us to help us, that no situation Nothing is beyond the reach or resources of the self-sufficient God. Because he is who he is. He is self-existent. He is from himself. He's the final resting authority, as you said, Annette. And nothing, he needs nothing from us at all. So that's the aseity of God. This seems to be the biggest problem with man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, what happened with the fall? The first thing we wanted to do was take control. Have a better say, better plan, better, more control. It's been all about control and identity. In the sense that we are greater than God who created us. We want our own identity outside of him. We want some level of control. That's been the problem since the fall. And the first thing that happened after that was a murder over the desire for control. It's like the essence of humanity. So God is self-existent. Number three. I promise we're going to get through all this. Number three. Whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself. Well, that's pretty straightforward. That's incomprehensibility. Now you see how terrible my writing is. God is incomprehensible. There are numerous texts that support the incomprehensibility of God. The name of God is incomprehensible. The nature of God, the works of God, the invisibility of God, all, all of these attributes are completely incomprehensible. And frankly, this is one of the most humble things. We are sorely mistaken if we think that we can somehow, as, inf or as finite beings, comprehend the incomprehensible, comprehend the infinite nature of God. I'm thinking just go home right now. Yeah, <laughs> go home right now if we try to put if we try to put words to that. In fact, we're moving on to the next point because we can't comprehend it. <laughs> this is one that can that can stir up some consternation. And in fact, they devote like 15 pages. Maybe that's a little too much in this exposition on the simplicity of God. Suffice it to say, we're not going to go that in depth. If you do want a nice treatment of it, pick this up and have some coffee and. Prepare to spend at least a couple hours trying to dig through that because it's uh, it, it's quite dense. But this next one is the simplicity of God. I kind of gave that away. That paragraph or that sentence in the paragraph, a most pure spirit, invisible without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immorality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto. Okay. This is not simple in the way that we might comprehend simple. Yeah, I read that wrong when I stumbled through that. That's immortality. Yeah, make sure it's not immorality. Did I say immorality? I think so. Yeah, and I, I <laughs> oh, said, I did? I said that, I said that yeah, when I first read that. through it. Yeah. And I stumbled through it. I said, that's weird. <laughs> and I just read the word wrong. And I think I set you up for that, but that's immortality. That's okay. Immortality. Well, if I said that, I think I was just following the leader then. But, um, I'm sorry. Yeah, you're fine. <laughs> I think I said immortality. Well, we, we, we've vacillated. I think sometimes you really? Yeah. Oh, wow, okay. Really. All right. Well, thanks, Beth. Um, a most pure spirit, invisible without body parts or passions, who only hath immortality, <laughs> dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto. Okay. This is not simple, like I said, in the way that we comprehend simple. We are not about to say or imply that God is easy to understand, that it's Simple, he has a simple nature that he's easy to figure out. No, 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 no. What we're saying here is that simple in the sense that God is one, 
and without parts. That's the simplistic nature that we're talking about. Not simple in ease of understanding, simple in, not even in description, but Ir simple. Irreducibility. Irreducibility. That's a great way to, to phrase that. He is ir the irreducibility of God. And this is kind of where it gets, I won't say murky, but it can get theologically dense. So I'm going to do my best to keep it at surface and create some understanding around it, but not delve too deep into it. Because God is simple, we also talk about the Trinity and God in three persons. But now we're starting to create some inconsistencies, so to speak, because we think about God as three persons, but we just said that he's one and without parts. So how does all that go together? Okay, that's the part where it's just like, you know, your brain kind of explodes a little bit. So God isn't composed, first off, of pre-existing things. So why is that important? Well, what does it mean if you're composed of pre-existing things? Or, you know, you, you put this together, you know, you put uh, a, a shelter, a, a bookcase together, you can, it's composed of pieces of wood and metal and et cetera, et cetera. What does it mean to you that if you're, if you're combining something together, what does it say about... Um, you, you have a beginning. You have a beginning. Yeah, it was created. Exactly, it was created. If we are to posit, if we say in this, in this room right now, that God is composed of pre-existing things, then what we're actually doing is saying that those pre-existing things were before God. So he's not ultimate in that sense. That there were things out there that, that were able to be put together to create God, so to speak. You mean like a mother and father? Like a mother and father or the parts God, of the spirit? Right? Or, you know, whatever, whatever aspect of God that you want to think about mm. to create because if we're saying that he is self-sufficient and that he is um, omnipresent and omnipotent and in all of these things, you know, obviously you're trying to, you know, what if it's, it's space and molecules and things like that that are putting together? None of that. So if he were composed of those pre-existing things, then whatever those factors were would be more ultimate than God. And as I said, the idea of the simplicity of God, because it says in here, without body parts or passions, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach him to, it d relates directly to the discretion of the Trinity. And, and frankly, we just have to resign to the fact that some things are a beautiful, wonderful mystery. And in, in paragraph three, we're going to get into that. I'm going to come back to it. But it's important to say right now where we are in this discussion that the persons of the Godhead must be distinguished the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, but they can't be separated. So God is simple in the sense that he's one, but we do have to deal with the Trinity, and we'll get there in this third paragraph. Okay, five. We will get through this, I promise. Number five is who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute. Amen, God is infinite. That's, that's basically what that is saying. That God is infinite. Okay, I think I'm going to just start keep pressing forward because we've got to break down each paragraph. Working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his glory. This is almost like, what am I thinking? But can you think of a word that we threw around quite a bit about God's something in his providence that goes along with this. Working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory. Sovereign. God's sovereignty. And I mean, I think the thing that I take away looking through all of these attributes, I am completely humbled in the presence of God when I look at every one of these aspects, that God is infinite, immutable, he doesn't change. And that's encouraging that he doesn't change. That he's immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory. And then we move into the next, and I think you can probably sum it up in one word. Most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth for Giving in iniquity, transgressions, and sin, love. There's a tremendous aspect of love that cannot be denied in the attributes of God. Now, that doesn't mean that he's not just. 
but God is also love. And then finally, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him and with most just and terrible in his judgment, hating all sin, who will by no means clear the guilty. Just said that, but God is just. So we've got eight really distinct depictions of the attributes of God in this first paragraph. And that really sets us up with a good foundation to lead into the second paragraph because this one deals primarily with the relation of God to his creatures. And so we're going to break it down into the five sections of the paragraph here. And for sake of time, I'll read this. God having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness, in and of himself, is alone and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in any need need of any creature which he hath made, nor deriving any glory for them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through, through whom, and to whom are all things. And he hath most sovereign dominion over all creatures, to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever himself pleases. In his sight, all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men whatsoever worship, service, or obedience as creatures they owe unto the Creator and whatever he is further pleased to require of them. So again, we're going to break this down into five sections. And that first goes all the way up unto um, number 20 here, but only manifesting his own glory and by whom and unto and upon them. And I think we've already dealt quite a bit about the self-sufficiency of God, but this reiterates the fact that God is self-sufficient and independent from his creatures. That's the first part of this paragraph here. Because he says, it says clearly in there, not standing in any need, of any creature which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them. So God is completely self-sufficient and independent from his creatures. And I really like what Sam Waldron says, that he may choose to manifest his glory in us, but not because he needs our love, our fellowship, or our support. Truly because he chooses to manifest his glory in his creatures, in his people. <clears throat> I, I am constantly humbled, particularly through this paragraph, of our subordination to God, our creaturely nature to God, and the fact that he is supreme above all. And I think that's one of the, 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 the 10,000-foot takeaway from this particular paragraph in this chapter is that we are subservient to an almighty creator and almighty God. All right, the second one. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. And he hath most sovereign dominion over his creatures to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatever, whatsoever himself pleases. I think that one pretty clearly gives a way in there that this is saying that God is sovereign over his creatures. If you want a really good scriptural proof text for this, it's in Genesis. And Genesis 14 Verses 19 and 22, it says, He is the Lord, God most high, the possessor of heaven and the earth. So clearly God is sovereign over his creaturely creation. Somebody pull up Hebrews 4.13. Because that speaks really in depth to the, or really clearly to the next one, uh, the next point that we talk about. I'm going to pull it up this way. So the next section of the paragraph, in his sight all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature, creature, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. 
What does that tell you about the knowledge of God to his creatures or of his creatures? Complete. Complete. It's complete. It's absolute. Yeah, he knows everything. Absolutely everything about his creatures. Hebrews 4.13. Whoever has that, read that, because I think it clearly articulates that for us. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Thanks, Beth. Clearly, no creature is hidden from his sight. God knows everything about his creatures. It's a humbling aspect because we think we can often hide from or shy away from God, but he knows absolutely everything. He's all-knowing. And it's clear from Scripture that no creature is hidden from him, but everyone is naked and exposed to the eyes of him, and we must give account. It's a very humbling nature to know that not only is God self-sufficient and independent and sovereign, but he knows everything about his creation. And that's going to impact everything that we talk about. Every one of these points, in some way, will impact the rest of the confession and the rest of unpacking the doctrine in the, the London Baptist Confession. I, I really like what Walden says about the next section. So the next section, he is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. That talks about the utter sanctity and that he says we are to stand in reverential fear of him even when his ways mystify our minds and disappoint our desires. It's, it's, <laughs> I don't even have words, I think. I, I'm just going to read scripture because I think that that paints the picture the best. Psalm 145, 17. If you want to read along. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. God has ultimate authority. He knows everything and he's righteous in everything that he does. That's so important to know that, that God is righteous and God is just. That has to be a foundational principle of our theological understanding. Because if we don't believe that God is righteous, then everything else breaks down from that. And finally, as he wraps up here, and in all his commands, to him is due from angels and men whatsoever worship, service or obedience as creatures they owe unto the Creator, and whatever he is further pleased to require of them. <clears throat> Revelation 5, 12 through 14. Then I looked, but I'll back up to verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. That is the ultimate depiction of reverence. And frankly, simply put, God may choose to ask anything of us, anything of his creatures by way of service, suffering, or devotion, and he has an essential right for our submission. Amen. That is exactly what's being said in this context. And boy, if you haven't been humble, that, that, this entire paragraph just makes me fall in reverential humbleness in front of the feet of God because it tells us that we that he is self-sufficient that he has sovereign dominion he knows everything about us we're to stand in fear of him and he can ask us anything Whew, that's heavy but it's humbling but he also loves us <laughs> and he loves us to the point where he sent the most precious thing that he had, his son, to die in a place where we deserve. That's just, it, it's, it's, it's incredible. Understanding the magnitude of 
who God is makes salvation the more, um, like the redemption is more uh, impactful or significant or deepens the redemption. Absolutely. But the more simple you are, the reali- or the more you realize you're sinful, the more that the deeper that love is with it to you. I guess I'm I'm mincing my words. No, I, no, I know exactly. The the greater the magnitude we re- or the greater that we realize the magnitude of our sin, the more that the love of God is immensely magnified. It's it's incredible. All right, we've got to deal with the Trinity, <laughs> and in the last ten minutes, we will wrap up talking about the Trinity. So someone wants to read for us paragraph three. We'll wrap it up, and we've got a couple scriptures that we can go through, but um, we'll wrap it up by talking about the Trinity. So if someone wants to read the final paragraph, um, we'll, uh, we'll dive into it. In this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word or Son, and Holy Spirit, of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence yet the essence undivided. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, all infinite without beginning. Therefore, but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations, which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on Him. Thanks, Damien. Anyone's head hurt for reading that? Anyone confused? Okay. So, first off, as we talk about the Trinity, we have to resign ourselves to the fact that there's a mystery here that we can't completely comprehend. That's the first caveat. The second caveat Please do not think that any confession or creed that we talk about are meant to fully explain the mystery of the Trinity. That's not the purpose of it. We're trying to put the best words to a page that is possible, but it's not meant to explain completely the essence of the Trinity or the mystery of the Trinity because, frankly, that's impossible. As I've said five times already, and I don't want to beat a dead horse, but it's impossible for our our finite minds to comprehend this magnitude infinite mystery of the Trinity. I just want to know who I'm praying to. Mm-hmm. Praying to God. <laughs> Wait, okay. Yeah. You're praying to God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I don't even understand the whole thing, but it's just... Um, let's, let's break it down a little bit. It, yeah. it, it's, it, it's, it's a very mysterious and difficult thing, and there's some tension. There is some tension there. Sure. So, yeah. May I offer one thought? Please. I Studying prayer many years ago because trying to figure that out myself and I don't know how well this helps but it helped me um, something I stumbled across was we're praying to God through Jesus by the Holy Spirit I think that's a really good way to phrase it that's the normal means that the that the scripture gives us in, yeah. in regard to prayer but that like stumbling across the that Father. statement that, that, that line really helped me to grasp yeah. as much as I can well and prayer. it's it's important when thinking about the Trinity, thinking about prayer, everything in Scripture, the formula in Scripture is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That sort of, um, that continuity that exists in the Scripture always exists in that triad, in that order. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So applying that to prayer, you're praying to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it, it, that, that's a helpful construct to think about because that's sort of the order that everything in Scripture talks about. And there's a couple of Scriptures that unpack it. Um, but in order to sort of describe it, God's not one person in three successive modes of existence. That's one sort of ancient heresy that he like, you know, sort of, sort of morphs through three different modes. That's not it. Nor another heresy is that Christ and the spirit, not God in the full sense of the word. That was another heresy that kind of existed. I, I can't really put it much better than Sam Waldron puts it in here. And so through describing The creeds and the confessions, here's what Walter says. He says, The church maintained the mystery by maintaining that God was in one sense, one, and in another sense, three. It asserted that God was ultimately both one and three. One essence or substance and three persons or subsistence. The creeds of the church fits this mystery 
they do not explain it. So yeah, there's, there's some that's left to be desired as far as an explanation goes. But I like how this exposition breaks it down. How do we explain things to children? We try to simplify things, right? So there's a helpful children's catechism that helps us break this down. And you're going to be like, I know, we just said all this, but it's the best way that we can break it down. Are there more gods than one? No, there is only one God. And how many persons does this God exist? In three persons. Who are they? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's about as good as we're really going to get in explaining. And I know you're like, we just said all this. Hang with me, because we have to talk about the, is there subordination between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? And we'll get there. But are there more gods than one? No, there's only one God. I don't know if we have time to read all of them, but I will have somebody pull up um, Matthew 3, verses 16 through 17, and Matthew 28, 18 through 20, because those are really important. But Deuteronomy 6, 4, I think we've kind of beat the dead horse that God is only one God. But that's another scriptural proof text, if you would like, Deuteronomy 6, 4, to say that there is only one God. So in how many persons does this one God exist? In three persons. Okay, let's get some scripture around that. Matthew 3, 16 through 17. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, whom I, with whom I am well pleased. All right. We have three distinct persons here. We have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit of God. And then Matthew 28. And they're all there at the same time, which in and of itself disproves modalism. Exactly. Because you can't have God morphing. That would be quite the trick, even for an infinite being, to have that existence of morphing that rapidly between these three different essences. So it completely destroys, in that sense, well, I say that that so assuredly, it it disproves modalism in that context of the verse. And then Matthew 28 18 through 20. I'll read this. This is from the Great Commission. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that really gets into who are they? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And clearly, we have multiple occasions in the scripture that talks about the Son being begotten of the Father. John 1, 14 and 18 clearly says the Son is begotten of the Father. And we, talk, we, we have clear verses that talk about the scripture. John 15, 26, I think, is a very clear example of this. John 15, 26 says, there we go. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So clearly the Spirit comes of the Father. So we have this, as I've said, everything is proceeding from the Father. The Son is begotten of the Father, and the Holy Spirit comes from the Father. So, okay, wait, is that telling me that the Son and the Spirit are less than the Father? Nope. Take that out. They are all equal. In that sense, and let's, let's, let's go back to the Nicene Creed because I think that helps break it down. Again, it doesn't help to explain it completely, but it helps break it down a little more. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God, a very God, begotten, not made, consubstantial, or of one substance, with the Father, by whom all things were made, both in heaven and on earth. One person, or one God, three persons, one substance. 
should be able to write my thesis now. Right? <laughs> it's complex. I'm not pretending that it's not. It's hard to wrap your mind around. But I think that helpful, what you said is incredibly helpful. And I think if you can try in some ways to apply that formula, so to speak, I know we say it all the time, but it, 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 when thinking about it, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, proceeding from the Father, begotten the Son, begotten of the Holy Spirit, or sorry, the, the Son, begotten of the Father, and the Spirit proceeding from the Father. And the Son. And the Son. That's right, and the Son. It's this complex, intertwined nature of the Trinity. I said I would end with a quote. Gerhardus Vos. This quote, I think, really helps lay it all out and was really helpful to me in solidifying it all. Although these three persons possess one and the same divine substance, Scripture nevertheless teaches us that concerning their personal existence, the Father is the first, the Son the second, and the Holy Spirit the third, that the Son is of the Father, the Spirit of the Father and the Son. We just kind of said all this. Further, their workings outwardly reflect this order of personal existence. Since the Father works through the Son, and the Father and the Son work through the Spirit. There is therefore subordination as to the personal manner of existence and manner of working, so the manners of working, but no subordination regarding possession of that divine substance. So if you think about the substance and the creation of the Trinity, it's all equal. The level of quote-unquote subordination that exists exists in the working of, because, as we said, the um, Father works through the Son, and the Father and the Son work through the Spirit. That's probably the most helpful way in organizing the thinking of the Trinity that I've come across when it comes down to breaking down this whole mystery of divine substance and persons and uh, singularity and simplicity. So, thoughts. There's a lot in that. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a difficult topic to kind of traipse through. But hopefully this was encouraging to some degree because there's a lot of scripture that helps break it all down. Any ending thoughts? Everyone's head hurt? Maybe that's what it is? <laughs> I feel like I owe you a, a question at least. <laughs> What's that? No, I'm just... Oh, because you, oh, no. you've gone through so much to explain it. I'm thinking... What I'm thinking is, you know, is it... In, in my mind, I feel like I get... I'm, I'm trying to learn something to understand the, the oneness of the Godhead, and, and yet it's so complex, and it really doesn't matter in the sense that I don't change anything. So really, my, my, my whole thinking is, well, the Bible says that God has got this three-person nature, if you would. Am I right? Mm -hmm. Okay. And yet, He's one God. So that's all I need to know. I'm done. That's really all you need to know. Okay. Damien, any closing thoughts? I know this was one lesson you were really interested in. Yeah. The I think just as a as a help for Jeff and for anyone else who has had this kind of difficulty, um, like Sean said with prayer, um, look, aren't aren't they all God? Yeah. Can't we pray to each one individually? Sure, why sure. not? I mean, that's not the normal way, but when we're praying, we typically pray, Father, you know, thank you, Father, thank you. But that doesn't preclude us from saying, and Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Right. Father, thank you for sending your Son Son, thank you for dying. dying. Holy Spirit, thank you for staying with me even though I grieve you on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. But the, the idea that I was having when I was struggling with this is, 
well, wait a minute. If we never pray to the Spirit, why wouldn't the Spirit get jealous? Because they're completely different than we are, right? They don't experience jealousy in the way that we experience jealousy, right? right? They're jealous for their own glory, for His own glory, right? So the Holy Spirit is not um, offended that we're praying to the Father. No, because the Holy Spirit is giving us the power to be able to pray through the Son to the Father. All right, so they all come, they all work together in, in that whole prayer. And, and it, there's no way in any sense that praying to the Spirit is better or praying to the, the Son is better or praying to the Father is better. They're all God. Right. But when you are praying... Maybe you should try to remember which one it is that you're talking about. Because, you know, we could say, Father, thank you for dying on the cross. Is that accurate? No, because the Father didn't die on the cross. The Son died on the cross, mm -hmm. right? So when we say, Father, and then we say, in your name, is that really accurate? No, because we're praying in the name of the, the Son. Son. Right, so there's a lot of a lot of intricacies there, but you don't have to worry about it. That's right. Right. None of these things do you have to be dogmatic about because, first of all, if if we do, let's say we pray, Father, and then we say in your name, um, he knows that we're fragile and frail and stupid. <laughs> okay, he knows our frame. He's not going to get upset with us because we prayed incorrectly. Right. I mean, we, right. we, we don't even know what to pray for. The Spirit has to intercede with mm -hmm. groanings that are too, too incomprehensible for us to understand. So, with all of that, look, God himself is incomprehensible. Yeah, that means that we <laughs> cannot comprehend, yeah. which means fully understand. But right. thank God that he made himself apprehensible. He gave us what we need to know about him so that we can apprehend his nature, yeah. so that we can understand just a little bit about who he is. Mm -hmm. We will never finish understanding who he is. That's, right. That's incomprehensible, but he is absolutely apprehensible. Absolutely. So that's just it. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, Damien. Yeah. Well, with that, you want to pray us out then? Sure. Thanks. Father, thank you so much. For making yourself known to us. Mm -hmm. If you had not specifically made yourself known to us, we would be lost. Mm -hmm. Because this creation only shows us that you exist. It doesn't explain your, your full nature. It doesn't explain the way of salvation. It doesn't explain your Son. It doesn't explain your Holy Spirit. So, Father, without your word, and your word being clear, mm -hmm. and it being sufficient, being complete, to help us know who you are, what you expect of us, who we are in relation to you, we would be completely and utterly lost. Mm -hmm. And you would be right in allowing that to happen because we are, in and of ourselves, so sinful that we deserve to be punished. Mm -hmm. But you, Father, because of your great love for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, you made us alive together with Christ. Thank you, Father. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one more comment, if I can make it fun. And anybody, but anyway, basically, for me, I'm thinking, you know, it's, it's almost like what, what we're hearing here is that don't worry so much about the, the intricacies of the Godhead why don't you just worry about being my creation? Why don't you learn to be obedient and, you know, understand that I am to be feared? Mm. Pretty much, right? Is that... Because, I mean, the focus moves into things that are useful, like obedience. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think in some ways, yes. You know, it's, it's important to understand, but it's not the... It, it's important. It's important to agree on 
the things of God as the Trinity, three persons, one substance, one nature. That's, I think, ultimately the most important because everything else that we talk about from the rest of this flows from that basic understanding. Yeah. Some of these intricacies, I mean, th- that is a primary issue. The rest, not, eh, I won't say secondary, but the rest could be classified. That That is a primary issue, the fact that the, the tri-unity nature of God is a primary issue. And if you can agree on that and know that is foundational, then everything else, the nuances, we can continue to discuss. But just, that's the most important thing. Okay. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Yeah.